So I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about the text, although I'll, I'll be honest with you, if you've been here for a while, it feels a little bit repetitive. Now, this is not my purpose in preaching, um, but this is what happens when you sequentially go through books of the Bible, is you, you, you usually have to deal with a theme over and over again because authors write to people like me and you that take a while to get it. And so I think this morning, if you've been here before, it might feel a lot the same. But if you're brand new, I hope this is fresh for you anyways. Um, Because this is about a big battle that goes on in our lives and in Christian churches and with Christians and really in the world in general. And that's this big battle between religion and the gospel and how I'm going to try to persuade you that religion in the way I'm describing it is not good and the gospel is good. Um, But I'm actually going to need a lot of help to do it, so if you'll bow with me as we pray. Jesus, again, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. The same power that raised you from the dead, Jesus, is the same power that you said is available to those who believe you, believe in you, believe you who you are, and to those who ask for that power for your glory. And so this morning, Jesus, just like we ask for your power to fix our technology, I ask for your power to fix my mouth so that I say only what you want me to say, and I say it with clarity and I say it with passion, what you want me to say, Jesus. And again, we ask for, the, for your help in this, not because um, we really need to know more information, but because we probably just need to understand it in a very real way that has practical applications. And so I ask that, Holy Spirit, your power applies this word to our lives and our hearts this morning. We need your help. So open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up our ears, and help us to listen well and worship well through what I say, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, let's get into the text. I'm going to read for you uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. And this is what it says. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live, live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is God's Word. We're in a series on Galatians, and we've called that series, very unique name, the Gospel. And the, the word Gospel is the Bible's shorthand word for the, the phrase good news or evangelion. And this good news really is all about Jesus. It is news. Uh, sometimes we hear that the gospel is something that we live out. And I would say we need to even rephrase that. And so I've started to even say it differently that the gospel um, has implications. But essentially the gospel at its core is news. It's good news about which we must make a decision. And we have the opportunity to make a decision. And this news is that Jesus Christ, who was God, became man, born of a Virgin Mary, lived the perfect sinless life that you and I should have lived, 
or, or are trying to live, maybe that's more in tune with what I'm saying today, are trying to live, but couldn't. He lived that perfectly, but then in our place, He chose willingly, with, in conjunction with the Father, to die for our sins and pay the price for our sins. This assumes a lot of things that you may or may not know. It assumes that you know who God is. It assumes that you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Some of you aren't even there yet. And so I never want to make those kind of assumptions. And so even as we begin, I want to drive home the fact that, that gospel is good news that you must make a decision about. You must realize and you must believe that what the Bible says about you is true. And that is you don't seek God on your own. Some of you say, well, I came to church by myself. I'm not going to get into an argument here this morning with you. I'd like to, but I'm not going to get into an argument with you this morning. But truthfully, all I'm going by is what the Bible has said about us. And the Bible says, there is no one who seeks God, not one. Truly, we seek God out of a... Even if we do seek God, we often seek Him out of a very poor motivation. Seek Him because we want something. Seek Him because we feel guilty or bad. Seek Him because we want to pay Him back or get to know Him. Or seek Him because if God is on our side, then we can do whatever we want. And the Bible says that no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what our race is, no matter what our age is, no matter what our sex is, we do not pursue God unless God's Spirit comes and begins to draw us and He pursues us first. Now that's, that's already as controversial for many of you. Because the way that maybe you came to God, you feel like you fully participated in, and I would say, yes, that's the amazing thing about God, is that He can draw you and allow you to feel like you are a full participant in the process. And I always use this example like that God does not draw people like you put a person inside of a police car. Right? Have you ever seen, anyone ever watch cops? Anyone ever, you know, been that bored? You watch cops, right? Or anyone is a cop? We got one cop. And we were talking about that this morning. What happens when, you know, you put them in handcuffs and you like shove them and you, you give them that, you know, arm bar behind. And some of us have this impression that that's how God draws people to himself. Right? That we're just walking along, do, minding our own business, and then God's like, eh, and we're like, oh, okay, fine, I'll believe, I'll, I'll, I'll obey you, I'll listen to you. And that's not what God does. You see, God gently, gently allows you sometimes actually to just, I, I, wallow is the only word I can use, but that belongs on a farm. Wallow is what pigs do in the mud, right? They just like play. Wallow in your sin, He allows you literally to pursue all kinds of things at times. So that you can see that all those pursuits are really fruitful. And then he says, look at how much better I am than this. And we need to know and understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And, and this Savior is not just a, an occasional Savior. He's not just a good Savior. He's a great Savior. He's a perfect, holy Savior. Sometimes we forget this about God. Anyone ever forget that God is super holy? You know, all you have to do is read the Old Testament to find out how holy God actually is. It's actually amazing. Because when He sets up things in place, for instance, when, when God sets up the ark and he, he makes the ark the, the place of His presence. Anyone ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? I know I'm quoting a ton of movies, eh? How can you tell I just subscribed to Netflix? Okay, so he, he creates the ark, but he, and he creates it as like the focal point of His holiness. And what's amazing is... 
is stories about this, people that kind of innocently want to help out, even if they touch the ark, they die. That's actually a story in the Old Testament. Not making this up. Right? They're, they're, they're putting this ark on these, with these wooden handles so that they don't touch it. And then the, the cart's kind of wobbly, like, you know, in Shrek, those old carts. Again, another movie reference. You're welcome. And the, 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 the ark starts to tilt a bit. And, and the guy puts his hand up to stop it from falling off the cart. And God kills him. Now, it sounds like really unreasonable for God to do. But actually what it does, most of all, is the guy was going to die anyways. And this is, this is God's perspective, right? He's going to die anyways. He might as well die glorifying me by showing me how holy he really is. And the guy is killed instantly. And everyone at that point knows, you do not mess with a holy God. And some of us need to hear this. And this is actually really in our text. Too. This is this is going to be much helpful for later. So we've got this holy God who really needs to punish and, and take care of every sin and be the perfect righteous judge, but he's a loving God as well. And he draws people in. He wants people to be in relationships. So he, he doesn't have this di- dilemma. He doesn't, we wouldn't call it a dilemma. He's got this plan. It's called the gospel by which he can perfectly punish sin And he can also love his people and draw them into relationship with him. It's good news. Now, you do have to believe that God is holy. You do have to believe that you are a sinner. You do have to believe that you need a Savior. Yes, you have to believe that. But the gospel is actually good news because you don't have to do anything for God. He does it for you. That's why the gospel is such good news. Again, this may sound weird for us, especially if we grew up in a church. We have some people here this morning that would have been very familiar with growing up in a church, and you've been told, if you do these things, then that means that you believe in God. That's not actually how it works. You believe in God, and then as a result of your belief and love for God, you obey Him. Not out of guilt, not out of what I would call religion, but out of love. And we'll, we'll get into this. And so there are, I think there are three types of people, three types of ways that we can think about living. That's, first of all, the gospel. That's the news that you need to make a decision about. And many of you have made the decision. And if you haven't, I, I, I encourage you, stop listening to the rest of what I'm saying and figure out what you think about that. Make a decision about that. But there are three types of ways, three types of people that, three types of responses to God. The first is that I would call the irreligious. These are people that, and I didn't, I didn't, this is not my own uh, doing. This is stolen basically straight from Tim Keller, who is probably the, uh, the grandpa of so many church planters. And, And he spelled this out so well, but he talked about these three types of people, the irreligious, those who don't really care about what God thinks. You know those kind of people. Maybe you've been one. But you're not really worried about what you do. You're not really worried about what you believe. You can ask these kind of people, well, what would you do if you knew you were, you know, if you died today, we know you go to heaven. These are the kind of people that don't really care, right? They think there is no God. There's no reason to pay attention to God. Um, if there is a God, there's no way I can know Him. That's, that's the agnostic or the atheist that, that just says, no, there is no God. And, and although they don't 
I, I believe they have less proof than Christians do. They don't want to believe that there is a God, and they don't want to do anything about it. I always say the agnostic is just the lazy atheist, right? Uh, someone who just doesn't have time is too lazy to figure out whether God really exists. But to be honest, he's way down the list. Now, we live in a culture filled of irreligious people. You know, I remember working with a guy, and I asked him point blank. I said, so do you think you're going to heaven or hell? This, this isn't the day I thought that would be really helpful and evangelistic by asking this question. And he goes, probably hell. And I was like, that doesn't bother you? Like, he never said anything else about it. This, this I troubled me. I couldn't figure this out. But that's the kind of people that live in our culture. They're not really that worried about what happens to them after they die. They're not too scared of it. Those are irreligious people. They would think that they can come to God whenever they want, and what difference does it make anyways? But there would be a second category, and I would say there's way more people in this category than you think, and there's way more people who look like Christians in this category, and that is the religious person. This is the person who thinks that Christianity is about what I do. Now, you can put a lot of different religions into this category, and I think you'd be right to do so. If you look at various religions of the world, you will see that many of them have everything to do with what you do. You notice that when uh, the, the Mormon temple opened in North Calgary, the focus was not on who Jesus was. Did you notice that, any of you? The focus was on what kind of booties you wore, how much money was in the temple, whether you had the special underwear or not. I still haven't seen the special underwear. I'd really like to. I know that sounds creepy, but I'd really like to see this. Um, I heard on the radio, I, you, I heard about that you can't drink as a Mormon. I heard of all these things. And so you can put lots of different religions and lots of religions that actually look a lot like Christianity and use Christian terms and phrases and actually a lot of churches that would not realize the deadliness of religious people. Religion is summarized by what we do for God. Now, sometimes, and this is what I really want to hit home today, sometimes we believe through faith that Jesus Christ was God became man, died for our sins. But functionally, we live as though our Christian life depends on our works. Do you know why I know that? Number one, I'm really smart. No, that's not true. Because I'm like that. That's how I know. I know that it's very possible to believe cerebrally in your brain, for those of you who aren't in college, that God exists, that He's real, and to functionally live as though my spiritual closeness to God depends upon what I do. There's a number of ways that I think you can test this, and we'll get into that. But thirdly, I would say, there's the Christian way of thinking. Now, some of you are like, well, wait a second, I thought you were talking about Christianity before. Actually, as Galatians will say, if you're religious and you think that way, even if you're functionally thinking that way, you're not, function, you're not thinking like a true Christian. That's actually not true Christianity. Paul was so violent when he talked about this that he wrote a whole letter to the Galatians begging them not to live religiously. I know it seems like I'm a, a broken record here. 
I have a record player. They're really annoying, right? Little skips on the record where it just kind of goes back and one second it just keeps going and going and going and going and going. That's what Paul does in the book of Galatians. That's why it might feel to you like this is over and over again. But this is how important it was to Paul that he was like, I'm not going to assume anything. I'm not going to assume you get it. I'm not going to assume this sinks in the first time I said he's going to come at it every single angle. And today's text is really the focus is on the religious way of thinking and how that is not the gospel. Some of you would not see the real danger in having religion involved in your understanding of the gospel. But my friends, Paul would say otherwise. Because the Christian way of thinking is through faith. We talked about that last week. Our technology guys have got that podcast up. It's available to you free of charge. Thanks, guys. So if you want to know more about kind of the, the faith aspect. But today is, is, is really the antithesis of faith, which is religion. Again, think carefully through your life. Think carefully to the, through the way that you function. Have you caught yourself thinking about your relationship with God in terms of what you do for God? When someone says, how do I know I'm a Christian, is your first response, well, I did this. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the righteous live by faith. So let me take the rest of our time to talk about our first point, which is really religion kills. Religion kills. Um, I'm using religion in, in the, in the negative sense here. If you go back in history and read some old books, they talk about religion in a very warm, generic sense. Um, they used religion in terms of, I think the gospel, but but I'm using religion in negative sense here. I'm using religion in the way the biblical Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law, thought about the Scriptures. I'm, I'm using religion in the negative sense. And the reason why it kills is because that's exactly what the text is trying to say. Paul is using some Old Testament references. He's talking to a group of re- relatively new churches. I wouldn't say they're always new Christians, but they would be new churches. By new, you know, 20-some years old, which even for our standards is still fairly new. And so he uses a, excuse me, he uses a bunch of Old Testament references to make his point. And and there's three or four of them in there. The first is, uh, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And that's preceded by all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now that reference is from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27. But before we even go there, I want to talk about what this law means. Those who rely on works of the law. Law here does not mean law of Canada. I don't know if you knew that. But it means the law of God in, found in the Old Testament, Testament summarized in Exodus chapter 20, which is also known as the Ten Commandments, are really the Ten Words. An interesting... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, get, I'll use that later. But that's really the summary. If you look throughout the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament law has to do with pointing back to these Ten Words. 
all the rules about the way the animals they couldn't eat and all of those things, they're all there to either um, show and explain the holiness of God and the oneness of God and the separateness of God from us, which is actually commandment number one. Commandment number one is you shall have no other gods before me. That's, that's the kind of the premier commandment that just basically gets... And actually, even before that, it says the Lord our God is one. They're, 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 this is first, right? And so everything, even all these, these laws show that God basically gets to tell us what to eat and what not to eat as Jews, right? That, that was the, the point of so many of those rules. And the definition of the law is really the, the, the Ten Commandment law. It's the summary. The Bible doesn't always differentiate what it's explaining when it talks about law. But you can assume that's what it means. And this Old Testament law, all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That is the quote from Deuteronomy 27. In chapter 27 and chapter 28, they're actually called curses and blessings. That's the names of the chapters. And those chapters summarize um, the book of Deuteronomy in a lot of ways. Because the book of Deuteronomy is a set of sermons that were given to Israel actually a number of years later after they had been given uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And they had kind of forgotten about them. And then God said, I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to fulfill this part of the promise from Abraham where he's going to bring his people into new land. That's why they're still fighting about land over there. Right? Because that was a big part of the promise. And so as they're bringing them into the land, Moses preached his last set of sermons. God was like, you know what? You're not going to preach. You're not going to go with these people into the land. You're just going to preach the last sermons as they go into. And, and they have the tape set with them, which turns out to be Deuteronomy. And so these list of sermons that Moses give are the blessings and the curse, curses. The blessings if you obey the law and the curses if you disobey the law. And he says, if you don't obey the law, then you are admitting that the law is not part of your life. But the flip side of it is also true. If, you, if you're going to obey the law, then you're saying this, this law rules my life. And if you miss obeying the law, you are under a curse from God. Now, we, again, don't take this very seriously, do we? You know, it's, it's amazing how many times that, um, although a lot of people wouldn't know it, they use the phrase, God damn. Now, this is interesting. If, if you really understood what that meant, that you wanted God to send a certain person to hell, you probably wouldn't use that word as much. But essentially, a curse is, is, is God damning someone. God condemning someone. God sending someone the, the penalty for their sin. And the penalty for their sin is death. Again, that sounds harsh until you read... Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, which has one sin happening by Eve, and God needs it punished. He sends them out of the garden for one sin, right? Can you imagine having to leave your home on the basis of one sin? I mean, I, I had this happen to me, actually. I was evicted from a, a garage for staying too long in my garage because that was part of the garage's agreement. And, and my response was, What? One time, you're not even going to give me a warning? You know, but that's actually uh, images God. 
One sin. You know, when you, when you speed and, and, the, and the policeman pulls you over and you say, but I obeyed most of the law, Mr. Policeman or Mrs. Policeman, what do they say? doesn't matter. You broke it now. That's what matters. You broke it this one time. And, you know, depending on how they feel about you, I guess they'll, they'll let you off or they'll give you a ticket. I never get that, by the way. They always give me the ticket. I just tell them the truth and they're all, just say the truth and maybe they'll believe you and let you off free. It's never happened to me. It's like I've never broken this law before, but now, really? Yes, this is how God feels about sin. He hates sin. And if you've broken one, you've broken the whole thing. That's what it says. If you rely on the works of the law, basically, first of all, you're under the curse of the law. You're under the punishment of the law. The second part of that is, you can't fully obey the law. Now we have a real problem. So if you rely on what you do for God, then you have to follow everything. You can't just follow one or two or three. That's what often happens to us, isn't it? We pick and choose which God bothers God the most and which don't, right? Most of us, I would say, don't murder people. Most of us. You can laugh. That's okay. Yeah, some of you are laughing really awkwardly right now. But most of us have chosen, like, that's a law that God's pretty serious about. Did you know, though, that breaking the Sabbath is actually previous to that murder law? So in the Ten Commandments, when God says, don't murder someone, before He even says that, is He says, take the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Anyone guilty of breaking the Sabbath deserves the penalty of death. Did you know that before murder comes dishonoring your parents? Anyone broken that law this morning? I mean, it happens all the time, but we don't take that law very seriously, do we? It's a kind of a recommendation. And so we do this as well. Even as Christians, we pick and choose which of God's laws are more important to obey and which are less important to obey. Very few of us take very seriously that the Bible, after it says murder and steal, it also says lie and don't covet. I mean, I honestly, I break that one fairly regularly. I covet all kinds of things. We all do. But the Bible actually says that there isn't like a partition that says, you know, this one's really bad and this one's not so bad. Now, let me, let me explain very clearly that um, the penalties in our land are not the same for these things, Right? And that's kind of sometimes what we do. We allow our culture to decide which is most important. And so our culture has said that murder is still a pretty heinous law to break. And so we shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do that. But because, you know, we don't have a bunch of policemen that are like, are you breaking the Sabbath today? Because I'm going to have to see some identification. Like that just won't happen because our, our country doesn't, doesn't have the same understanding of God's law. But that was, that's what Paul says, if you rely on obedience, if you rely on your religious way of living towards God, if you rely on that obedience, number one is you're going to have to do the whole thing. Number two is you're going to break them. Now that's a problem right there. Because you need something or someone else to deal with this. And the Old Testament sacrificial system dealt with kind of the wrath of God. And that's why God called His people to sacrifice animals. To say, somebody's got to pay 
Somebody's got to die for this in your place. Again, this seems really harsh until you really understand the holiness of God. And so as as we see in the text, this gets really dangerous. This gets really impossible. And this is the reason why living religiously is so dangerous to us as Christians. That even though we may believe this cerebrally, it's very important for us to functionally live this way, trusting in faith. Because... Paul is basically saying, if you reject the gospel news that by grace through faith you are declared righteous, then you're going to have to live perfectly obedient to God through what you do. And my paraphrase, good luck with that. That's kind of how the text says it. Go ahead. Try. You're going to fail in a matter of hours. You know, it's interesting that you see in the, in the New Testament when all these people come to Jesus and they all claim to have obeyed the law perfectly. It takes about two minutes for Jesus to uncover that they've broken the law their whole life. And that God does not have their heart. Because this is what the law can't do. The law can't give life. And you know that if, if my kids obey me all the time, that's one thing. But if they have a relation, doesn't mean they have a relationship with me, Right? You have people like that in your life. You obey the law, but that doesn't mean you have a relationship with those who govern you, right? When the policeman stops you and enforces the law, this does not insinuate a relationship with them because that's exactly how the law functions. It doesn't have this ability to function as a relationship, and this is what Paul is saying. Now, it's evident that no one can be justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And so let's go back to our irreligious people. Our irreligious people don't care about God's law. They don't pay attention to God's law. They're unaware that God's law says what God's law says. They're unaware of the line in the sand, so to speak, of what is right and wrong. The religious people, however, think that they can earn God's favor by being obedient to that law. And this is a big shift that I think needs to happen for us, either as Christians or before we become Christians, but God's law is not put in place so that you can obey it. Does that sound crazy and heretical to you? Because it's actually true. God did not put the law in place for you to obey it. He put the law in place to show you His standard and then provided a way when you disobeyed the law to be still made righteous through Him. If you go into our children's ministry and you look at the handout, there last week was a great example of this. I'm trying to remember how it went. But it was a a yes or no question. I felt like I was in grade 3. Remember in grade 3 when you used to pass notes like, ask this girl... To ask this girl, to ask this girl, she likes me or not? Check the box, yes or no. Anyone ever do that as a kid? That was me. I'm all alone there. Okay, I did that then. Okay, you guys can laugh at me for that. I passed the note. Check this box if you like me. Maybe, yes or no. I didn't get very many maybes or yeses. In fact, I got a whole lot of, uh, Trevor, can you hand me that piece of paper? 
from the teacher. But the, the, the handout for the kids was essentially this. Did God give the Ten Commandments so that people could obey them? Yes or no? Can people obey the Ten Commandments fully? Yes or no? Does God save people? Yes or no? Meaning, even at this young age, we're trying to teach our kids, the law is not given to you to try harder to obey the law. That's the religious way of thinking. You don't try harder out of motivation of of pursuing God. Yes, you want to obey God, but not out of the motivation of trying to just keep everything right between you two. There's no relationship there. The law is given to show God's standard, and then Jesus is there to help you mend that relationship and make that relationship true. That's the gospel. That's why it's called good news. And religious people functionally think only about what they do for God and not about what God does for them. Think about the way you respond and think, when I ask you, how do you know you're a Christian, how do you respond in your head? Do you respond, well, I... this. Maybe it's, I believe. Okay, that's a free one. You get that one. I believe and trust. But really, you should begin with, well, Jesus has provided a way for me to be in relationship with Him. Jesus. And the reason why that's important is because Jesus came first. That's the way the Bible describes the gospel. You did not seek God. He sought you. While you were yet sinner, Christ died for us. He had this plan in place before you were even a thought in your parents' mind. And He had a plan all throughout eternity, to make sure that you could hear the gospel, know the gospel, believe the gospel, and apply the gospel to your life, and one day essentially live out the gospel forever in eternity. And we're so religious. We have all kinds of ways of trying to to help us to obey because we, we get stuck in this old rut of thinking that this is the way God will be really happy with me if I don't sin as much. Have you ever thought that? God will be way happier, happier with me if I don't sin as much. What we do when we, when we do that is we, we create these kind of rules to, like, we, we, to manage our sin down. That's why I call it, when we began the series, the sin management gospel. We try to manage our sin down to as as little as possible so that our relationship with God boils down to how little I can sin. And so we we even devise rules like that. Like, um, you know, we're, we, uh, I'll give you a good one from kind of the Jewish background. Okay, they didn't want to break the law of taking God's name in vain. By the way, that's commandment number three, just as important as murdering and stealing again. And obeying your parents or honoring your parents. And so, they, they didn't want to misuse God's name. And so here's what they did. They rewrote God's name and they left out a number of letters in the word. So last week we sang a song called Yahweh and we spelled the whole thing out. Did you know that the Jews won't do that? They won't spell out the whole word Yahweh. They won't spell Y-A-W-H-E. Whatever, you, you're the spellers. See? 
good example is, if I was Jewish, I just broke the law of God. Because I didn't say the name of God right. I made a mistake. And that's punishable by death. Now, I for one, right now I'm glad that that is dealt with on the cross through Jesus. But see, what happened was, is God was trying to show how holy His name is and how special His name is, and they totally missed the point by simply devising a rule that they could do, a religious way of thinking about this, so that they couldn't sin or they didn't sin accidentally. And I think for, for although I understand the respect thing, I think they just totally missed what God was trying to say there. God wasn't trying to say, don't use... My name, make sure that you, and when you say it, just use a word that seems like my name, but it's not totally my name, so that you don't, like, mess me up, make me mad, and I don't, like, smite you with a lightning bolt. It used to be a joke in my family that if you, you know, if you said something or, or you were sacrilegious that, you know, you better, you better stand away from that person or God's going to just, you know, kill him with a lightning bolt. Ever felt like that? This is the religious way of thinking, like somehow that God withholds His lightning bolt because you're so holy to begin with. Like, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. Like all of a sudden, that person saying something out loud is going to cause God's wrath, but your entire life of sin is not. It's just a religious way of thinking. And friends, this letter is not written to people who have been who are brand new Christians and are sorting through what it means to obey God. It's It's preaching against people who are, who are Christians, who know the truth, who know the gospel, but are functionally working their way back into religious living again. Friends, the, the point isn't to be just hunting out sin and getting rid of sin, although that is part of a Christian walk. But this gets into your motivation. Why are you doing this? I remember taking great grade 10 typing. Only A I got in high school, by the way. What a nerd, eh? I haven't come very far. I took a typing class, and I remember how they had like they had names of people who were certain typers. And so if you did this, if, if you kind of did the one-finger move, you were Hunt and Peck Hector. Anyone remember Hunt and Peck Hector? No? I must have been in an outdated high school then. Okay, Hunt and Peck Hector was the was the the typer who just looked for the letter and then went bam, bam, kind of like you know a, a little bird. And I feel like we're Hunt and Peck Hector Christians sometimes. We spend most of our time religiously looking for the sin and then bam, and then bam, and and we get we get in this in this mindset that the the Christian life exists of of just trying to you know like kind of like the whack-a-mole, trying to bash out all the sin in our life. And we miss the fact that Jesus Christ came to bring life to us, not to make us hunt and pack Christians who just have a lot less sin than other people. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people reject the churches because people spend so much of their time trying to just manage their sin. Now they say, well, the truth is you can't manage your sin. You need someone to deal with it completely for you. You can't manage it. And that's what Paul's trying to say. If you try and manage it, you're going to lose. So don't even try. Live by faith. 
The righteous will live by faith. As I said last week, it's how it is in the gospel. It's how it's always been. Even Abraham, his righteousness was not based upon what he did. His righteousness was based upon him believing in God and then as a result of that belief in God, obeying God and acting that. And I know some of you have the response like, well, what about works? Well, what about what I do? Is, are you saying I don't do anything? That's actually not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you don't do anything. I'm saying you don't do anything in terms of your standing before God. But because of your standing for God, you have things to do. And we believe that really high. Some, one of the reasons why I think churches don't grow very much is because we think that the point is just to get saved and just to get people to hunt and peck their sin away. But that's not really the fullness of life. And for those of you who have tried that, it's not very fun, is it? You're like, I'm in this accountability group and I'm in that accountability group and I join these guys and these guys and all we do is, I sin. Oh, that's too bad. We'll try again harder next time. It's pretty boring, isn't it? Ever been in an accountability group that lasts like four weeks and you're like, this is dumb. Yeah. This is dumb because all we're doing is trying to manage our sin and there's no life here. It's boring. Now I know that you're a pervert, so it's, it's even worse. And friends, don't. Don't buy into it. I'm not saying don't join an accountability group. I'm saying join an accountability group that says, okay, well, what did Jesus do for me? What does the gospel say about me? I feel like a pervert. What does the gospel say? I'm a child of God and I've been cleansed of my sin. Amen. See you next week. (laughs) What does the gospel say about me? Jesus loved me enough that he didn't allow his white hot holiness to interfere with his relationship with me. Yeah, I need to hear that again. Just so you know, that's what we're trying to design our services around. Not even that you come and hear things that you have to do, but primarily you come and hear who you are in Jesus Christ so that you can now go out and listen to Jesus about what you need to do. And again, Paul will actually talk about this in Galatians. Walk by the Spirit. There's action here. There's activity here. You are not saved for your own mission. You are saved for the mission of Jesus Christ. That literally when he planned out your salvation, he didn't just save you from your sin. He saved you to his mission. And he has work for you to do in bringing, bringing you on board to work on a team with other Christians. We call them churches. We call them city groups where we work as a team. We work out the mission of God in our area. We work out what the gospel has meant to us and what that result of that gospel is. And so there are things to do, friends. But I'm begging you, do not buy in to living religiously. Here's functionally how you can ask yourself these questions. How do you know you're living a religious life? Some of you are still confused, and I understand that. Because it takes time to get this. But answer these questions. Number one, what's your motivation to obey what Jesus says in Scripture? Do you obey Jesus out of fear, or do you obey Jesus out of love? Do you obey Jesus because you are afraid of what he might do to you? Or afraid of the relationships that he might take away from you? Or do you obey Jesus because you say, I want to reflect Jesus? If you're in the first category a lot, you're, you're caught up in living religiously. 
that you obey out of fear. You want to manipulate your relationship with God. So you think that by not doing certain things, you get a greater standing with God and you please Him more and you can be more involved in your mission. I tell you that's not true. And I speak very personally from that. I should not be standing here planning a church. I'm just as broken as every single one of you. And I have to remind myself that because of what Jesus is doing in my church is not a result of my obedience or even my faithfulness. I have not been all that faithful. I mean, when it gets right down to it, if you could see into my heart, you'd go, oh, he's a lot like me. So true. Jesus works. Jesus asks us to participate in his mission on the basis of his glory, not on the basis of me and my obedience. Does he choose to use my obedience in special ways at times? Sure he does. But he does not place his blessing upon me based upon my obedience to him. In fact, it feels like the majority of time that's switched around. That the times I least deserve him, he blesses me. Some of you think, When something bad happens to you, you say, wait a second, I've obeyed God. Ever been like that? Wait a second, God. I I read my Bible every day this week and you took this away. If that's the way you think about obedience, friends, you're living religiously. That's not the gospel. Secondly, do you find your prayer life consists based exclusively on your needs and not on your relationship with God? Do you pray only when you need to? <laughs> when you have to? It's like, uh, uh. Now, are we not supposed to pray for our needs? Absolutely, we're supposed to pray for our needs. Our screen wasn't working this morning. We prayed for it. It worked. I was like, I, I know Jesus answers prayer. I just didn't think he was that fast. It was awesome. But is our prayer life exclusively based upon our needs? Do we forget about going to God? Except when we need something. I need this guilt off my back. I need a new job. I need all these things. Or does your prayer life consist of need and relationship? You know, I'd be really disappointed, and I am disappointed just so that you know, when my kids come to me only when they need stuff, right? As an adult, you learn this very quickly, right? As a teenager or a college student, this is what happens. Um... You get on the phone, but only when you need money. Right? At college, anyone ever been like this? I am so guilty of this. <gasps> hey, mom and dad, how are you doing? It's awesome. Yeah, life is going awesome. Yeah. Um, I need some money. Would that be okay if you just drop some in my bank account and clean up all my messes? That'd be great. Thanks. I love you. Bye. Remember thinking after a while, I wonder if this gets old as a parent. The only time that Someone comes to me or my son comes to me is when he needs something from me. Now, God is so gracious that, that he still works in your life and he still gives you things. But friends, you can tell if you're thinking religiously about this, if your prayer life basically is run exclusively around your need for God. If you pray basically only about the things that you want or need. And really, you're only praying about them so you can control your environment. So really, what you're saying in the way that you pray is, I'm in control, God, and I want you to help me with my mission. 
Thirdly, how do you feel about yourself when you don't live up to the standards you set for yourself? Anyone ever struggle with feeling depressed, being depressed? Anyone ever been caught in some sort of habitual sin that just really downward spirals you and you just can't seem to get out of it? And your response to that is, I just, I, I feel so terrible about myself. And friends, this is why the gospel is good news. The gospel says, Jesus knew, he pre-knew that you would be like this. He pre-knew that you would have struggles with this. And he still chose you and he still chose to save you. And he still chooses to bless you. Is he disappointed with your disobedience? He is. Because he's a holy God who's not disappointed that you obey. He's disappointed that you don't trust that his way is better. And so, friends, is your life consist, or, or, or conversely, do you just feel really good about yourself that you have obeyed God a lot? This is, this is kind of, honestly, this is, I've got to watch this in my life. That my emotions, how's your walk with God? Well, good, I obeyed him a lot this week. Right? How's your walk with God? How are you feeling with God? Bad. I, I didn't walk like I should have with God. And that's kind of resting on our emotions and resting on this religious way of thinking. You really, do you try to atone for your sins when you mess up by trying to obey God more? That's a religious way of thinking. Fourthly, has your goal been to repent as little as possible? Are you the hunt and peck Hector or Heather, if you're a woman, <laughs> who, who literally is, is trying to whack-a-mole your sin away so that maybe God can accept you once you're a mature Christian? Some of you, that, that withholds you from so much. It withholds you from serving in church. It withholds you from, from moving forward with your life. It withholds you from doing things like getting baptized. It withholds you from really stepping out in faith because you're like, no, God can't use me because I have this sin. And when I deal with this sin and get rid of this sin, then I can move forward. And friends, that's actually not what the gospel says. The gospel says Jesus accepts you on the basis of what he has done. And the goal is not to repent as little as possible. The goal is a relationship with God and to glorify God through that relationship. And so lastly, the gospel gives life. And that's exactly... The the gospel is there in the last two verses. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the, the Bible says that the penalty of sin is death. And those who deserve death should be cursed by God. And Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from slavery. That word is from Exodus, which is the same kind of word where God redeemed His people out of Egypt. They were in Egypt. They were in slavery. He bought them back out of slavery from Egypt. And He put them in a land where they could worship Him. That's what redeemed actually means. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. That's why Jesus died on the cross. The Old Testament actually says the way you, you punish someone who's cursed by God is you hang them on a tree. Some people get this mixed up and they say, oh, if you're hanged, then that means that you're cursed. No, that wasn't really the point. The point was, if you knew that person was cursed by God, you hung them on a tree to explain this. Just like when, when, when the death penalty is given to people, they, they put them on a table and they open the, the the window and the curtains to show people this person 
committed a crime and we're taking their life from them. You don't, you don't do that behind closed doors. Well, to the public you do, but essentially there are people who witness this and you see this. And that's exactly what, what hanging on a tree was supposed to imply, that this person is cursed of God. And the reality of the gospel is that you and I deserve to be that hanging from a tree like this. We, de- we deserve to be cursed by God for our sin. But Christ redeemed us from that curse by instead saying, I'll hang on the cross for you. I will pay the penalty in your place. You don't need to try and earn this favor from me. You don't need to try and do it through your obedience. In fact, you can't do it through your obedience. You can only do it if I do something about it. And I choose to do something about it, he said. I will come to you. I will live amongst you. I will live the life you should have lived in your place. And I will take your sin and I will be cursed by God for you. I think this is, this is the part of the crucifixion that we pass over. We, we, we pass over this, that, that Jesus experienced a lot of pain. And I, I'm not going to take away from the fact that Jesus experienced pain, physical pain. He died the most embarrassing type of death that you can possibly, you could possibly die in those days. But I think the greatest example of his love was he said, I will feel what it's like to be cursed by God for you. And that's why when he's on the cross, he screams out to God, why have you forsaken me? That's why. Because he said, this curse is too much. In his humanness, he said, this is the worst part. His feeling completely and totally rejected by God. And feeling God's wrath towards sin. It killed him. He did not just die from asphyxiation. He died from the unbearable weight of sin. Christ redeemed us from that curse, friends, by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, which is what, which was, I will make a great nation among you. I will bring, I will gather a bunch of worshipers, might come to us, the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through the faith, through faith. It's amazing, friends. It's amazing. We not only get freed from the curse, we get the Holy Spirit, which will lead us out of religion, friends. That's why the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He leads us away from religious lifestyle and towards the gospel and says, don't trust in your obedience, trust in Jesus. Don't live like your obedience, your salvation depends on your obedience. Live like your salvation depends on Jesus, which let me tell you it does. In faith. Some of you, here's the application. Some of you need to repent, not of your sin, but of your religiousness. I had to do that this week. I had to repent and say, Jesus, I'm trusting in, in doing this even, even as I prepared the sermon. I was like, please help me with my sermon. And, and then I felt the Spirit saying, why? I was like, so I can preach your word. Why? So that, and I realized, Boy, my motivation sometimes is like to keep my job, to keep my church going, because you asked me to. My motivation was not because that... 
for your glory. And friends, some of you this morning are really religious in the way that you live. Not in the way that you talk, but in the way that you live. And you look down on people that aren't as religious as you are. They don't obey God the way you are. So you look down on them and you think less of them. And you hope that one day they can get as good at being religious as you are. And you need to repent of that. And you need to confess, Jesus, I'm trusting in some wrong things here. Today, I want to trust in you. Holy Spirit, through this faith, would you lead and guide me away from religion? And would you guide me toward the gospel? We have this tradition at our church. It's not our new tradition. It's a tradition that's been given to us by Jesus himself, who said, every time you gather, I want you to... (laughs) Remember that religion doesn't earn your favor, that I earned your favor through my death and my resurrection. And so today, that's the only application I'm going to give to you. That as you come, come not just because you habitually come every week, but come saying, Jesus, as I'm taking this, remind me again of the ways in which I have been religious and and confess them to him. Again, don't confess them to manage your sin. Confess them because you, you love Jesus. So I invite you to come.